This past Easter, I had an interesting experience. Um, many of you were here in the sanctuary for Easter Sunday morning. I was not. I was with little children. Uh, I was, to be more specific, with 10 boys ages 2 through 4. Um, I was serving there in order to care for the little ones, teach them God's word as best I could, with a brother, Rico, um, who I do not think is here, for I think he is still recovering from that experience. Uh, ten boys, no girls. And it was something I'll remember my whole life. These boys, these children live radical lives. Um, and I saw it in front of me. And before I continue, I must give thanks to the Lord for those of you who serve in the children's ministry. Um, it is unbelievable what you do Sunday in and Sunday out. I do heartily recommend that all of us take our turn with these 10 boys. And some we're missing. Um, we've been blessed with young boys, young men who need the care and love of this church. Um, I, you know who you are who serve faithfully. Um, but it was a blessing to me to be there. But what I saw was not a blessing in the moment. I'm not going to lie to you. It was ugly. Uh, some of you I had to vent afterwards. Uh, ten little boys who seemed to each want to do their own thing, and each of those things was in opposition to every other boy. And I tell you honestly, my boy was there, and he was one of the problems. So this is not about your children versus mine. This is about our children. And what I saw was fighting and hoarding and, and struggling to keep what was theirs and to not offer to others what they had claimed to be their own. And I kept thinking to myself, this is so ridiculous. None of this is theirs. It's the church's property. Why do they hold on so tightly to these items? Why do they struggle and fight with each other? There are a set of rules. Why do they disobey all of them? Why do they seek every moment with which I nor my brother were not watching to attack every rule, break it, and almost relish it? Um, I was impressed with the intelligence. I will tell you that. The creativity was off the charts. Um, what an incredible Easter morning that was. And I sat there thinking, uh, thinking and thanking God. Thank you, God, I am not a two- to four-year-old boy. Thank you, God, that I do not struggle with wanting to hold on tightly to what is mine, and yet none of this is mine. Thank you, God, that I don't struggle with these heart issues. But wait a minute, Lord, I do, don't I? And in that moment, I realized these boys were just like me. There was no difference. It was easy to look at them and judge them, but if I spent just a moment thinking about them, it would turn my attention back to my own struggles as a man. Children live radical lives. That's one dimension of the radical lives. The next dimension came to me this morning. My two-year-old took his favorite, supposed favorite uh, uh, stuffed animal and decided to bathe him in the toilet. Um, and take him out of the toilet and bring that toilet water into the dining room and into the kitchen. Uh, um, this, is, this is how you should start every Sunday morning. And my heart quickened 
and my frustration grew and my anger uh, increased. Uh, I pray that I was calm. He did get disciplined uh, because he knows that this is not something he should do. But something amazing happened. In the disciplining, uh, he turned to me with his arms wide open wanting to hug me. As I was angry at him, as I was frustrated at him, he wanted my love. He wanted my assurance that that love would never go away in that moment. And I said, well, that's radical because I don't do that. I do not turn to my Heavenly Father when I have been disciplined with my arms wide open and said, thank you, please hold me because your love is far greater than this discipline I'm going through right now. Children live radical lives. And then they grow up. And one of those two things changes. One of them does not. The selfishness, the greed, the coveting, unfortunately that stays. But the unbridled love of someone who loves them tends to die away in us, doesn't it, as we get older? We become self-reliant. We become independent. We need no one and nothing. And when we are disciplined, do we turn and say, thank you, please, hug me. This was a, something I needed. Or do we actually turn away and hold grudges and maybe even sin? There's a radical dimension of being a child that I want to point your attention to this morning because something happens and somewhere somehow we continue to think that when we become a Christian that becoming a Christian doesn't somehow come with radical changes to our hearts minds and lives that somehow we are not called to become like children in the most important way turning to our Heavenly Father daily in repentance and faith and love and assurance and security and confidence and hope. How do we continue to think that when we are Christians, we can just go about our daily lives the way things have always been? And it's, it's with those thoughts I'd like you to open your word this morning. Let us read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. This is on page 846 for those of you using a Black Pew Bible. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, 
then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which pours out, Lord, this morning into our hearts. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would truly be open to receive the water that you offer us. For, Lord, I pray that we are truly thirsty for you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we recognize that we are starving and hungry for you. Lord, as we have shared this morning around your table, let us now continue to eat this morning of your word and taste and see that it is good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were able to be with us last week, we reviewed chapters, uh, verses 17 through 21, talking about the rich young man. And if I might just give a quick summary, we might say about that episode, although this young man had his mind set on eternal life, his heart was set on the world, its wealth, its status, its power. And it is with that ending of that episode where this man was offered eternal life, the question was asked and answered. Jesus said, here, this is all you lack. And the man rejected the offer. Not only that, he rejected not only the offer of eternal life, but the offer to walk with the Lord during his ministry on this earth. And so something amazing happens. This man leaves, and we know what was probably going on in the minds of the disciples. Question marks popping up. You, you, you can imagine a cartoon. And Jesus, of course, knows their thoughts. And here's where we'll begin today in verse 23 onward through 31. Jesus knows their thoughts and begins to use this episode, this real event, to teach his disciples an, an important critical lesson. So I'd like to bring to your attention four points this morning. The first point is that the gospel will arouse our minds. The gospel will arouse our minds. The disciples have heard a man ask about eternal life, the kingdom of God, the good news that the kingdom of God is now breaking forth into man. And Jesus replies with an amazing, perplexing statement that wealth negatively correlates with our acceptance by God. That wealth somehow is a detriment, is a roadblock, is a stumbling block, is a barrier to entering the kingdom of God. And more than that, Jesus shows by the behavior of this man that it wasn't just about wealth, but it was about his heart. His heart was not set on God and the things of God. But the disciples were perplexed. And as we read in verse 23, and Jesus looked around and, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Why was this news to them? 
Had Jesus missed a chapter in the lesson on this issue as the disciples walked with him? Because they were amazed. Not at the event itself, although I'm sure they had incredible questions, but at this statement. Wealth somehow is a problem. Wealth somehow leads to something that leads to us not being able to enter the kingdom of God. And what did the disciples have in their head? Well, they had something that is all too common, an idea among us humans, that wealth somehow is a sign that God loves us, that wealth somehow is a sign that we are doing great, that wealth is a blessing, and we must be favored if we are wealthy. I think the disciples give away their mind and their ideas, but the gospel starts to arouse their minds. The gospel starts to challenge their minds and say, what is in your minds? Why do you believe that? Well, there are a lot of good reasons why we might believe that the wealthy are blessed and are headed in the right direction. They look good. Everything outside looks good. There is nothing when you are wealthy, or let's say this way, when you are wealthy, you can put on an appearance of perfection, of comfort, of success. You can clothe yourself both literally and figuratively with status, with power. It seems like a good thing. It seems like it makes sense. And furthermore, when you're wealthy, you don't struggle with a lot of the things that the poor do. Wealthy do not have to steal. It's kind of inherent in wealth. They do not struggle with many of the outward sins, the commandment-breaking behaviors that if you are in poverty, you are tempted by. In a very superficial sense, being wealthy on the outside, having it all together, the perfect family, the perfect life, the perfect house, the perfect cars, all of that can lead to this idea that, well, something must be going right in this person's life. Maybe even say things like, God must be pleased. But the problem with wealth is that it's so easy to hide what's going on inside. When you live in poverty, when you live without wealth, your heart and your life are much more strongly connected in this way. Poverty brings suffering and temptation, and you feel it, and you're able to see it in people more easily. They suffer. And there are many pictures of this in the Word of God. And Jesus is trying to arouse their minds to say, take a look at what you believe. Take a look at what is inside of you. And here... I must point us back to just before this whole story begins. Jesus is already often attacking their beliefs. He says in Mark 10, 14-15, as the disciples rebuked the coming of the children to Jesus, Jesus says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Children, at the bottom of society. No wealth. I do not know many wealthy children. That's why they steal everything. That's why my kids, I try not to have them have pockets. 
You know, it's the old joke. If you have pockets, you want to put something in them. Jesus saying, children, be like children. Somehow, children are a model for us to follow when it comes to this issue of our hearts and wealth and God our Father. And this is the first step of the work of the gospel. One of the first steps of the work of the gospel is to start to question our assumptions, to start to question our patterns of thinking, to start to question what is good? What does God want? And where do I fit in this picture? The entire gospel of Mark is a picture of, and a description of both the growth of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. Mark is this great book. That's why we recommend it here at church. If you've never really gotten into the Word of God, start with Mark because you get to see in real images pictures of what it means to follow Jesus, how you grow and what it costs and where the sacrifices are and will be. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Mark sandwiches this important lesson here between two episodes of Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to sacrifice the most. So Mark is trying to lead us somewhere. We're on the way to Jerusalem. We are on the way to the cross. And the gospel wants to arouse your minds. It wants to start to hit those patterns of thought that you have relied on to get you where you are. The gospel will arise our minds. Point number two, the gospel will arrest our hearts. The gospel will arrest our hearts. Here, Jesus uses a very famous uh, um, uh, usage of hyperbole. Hyperbole. We read in verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Here's his famous use of, a, of words to hit home a point. We call this hyperbole. Is it to believe? Can you put a camel through the eye of a needle? I don't think so. But oftentimes when dealing with children, do we not use these devices to make a point? And children can suspend disbelief. If I were to make this point to a child, they might for a second go, okay, I mean, you say it, let me work this out. Maybe a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. But what he's calling them is to say, very important here, he says, children, and this is the only time in the Gospels that the disciples are called children. Children, release any ideas you have about human effort and power when it comes to God. Let them go. Wealth, status, power, none of that matters in what I'm telling you about. How do we know that? Camels and needles can't happen. They don't. There's been a lot of discussion about what this really means. I will put it to you today. It means exactly what he says it means. It's not possible. There were already, or soon after this, we have records of, of Jewish uh, hyperbole where Jew, uh, rabbis would say an elephant threw a an eye of a needle. What's important? The camel is the largest animal, land animal in Palestine, and the needle is the smallest hole that you could imagine for these people. The biggest and the smallest. 
And no strenuous amount of human effort can squeeze you into the kingdom of God. No amount of your human effort can make you get through that tiny hole. And the disciples are exceedingly astonished. Before they were amazed, and actually you might translate perplexed, confused. Now, Jesus has their full attention. Now that he has their mind, the gospel is arresting their hearts. They are now being challenged at a much deeper level. Because the response is quite interesting. The disciples say, or Peter especially, speaking for the disciples, uh, uh, so the disciples say, then who can be saved? This is critical. This who can be saved is a question that begs the answer, no one it sounds like, including us, the disciples. They have been found out. This is another point to show that the disciples had that exact same pattern of thinking that wealth equals blessing, and blessing means that you've got an easy street into the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, they say, well, then who can be saved? And they're pointing to themselves in their own hearts. I would imagine now he's got their full attention. What about us? We are completely also part of the way that the world thinks about this. The disciples are at the end of their rope. In that moment, they can't wrap their heads around these truths. I would imagine that they're getting nervous. Their hearts are quickening and beating faster. For maybe they realize right then and then, wait a minute, we're no different than that rich young man. If we had wealth, that might be just us. And has Jesus just shut the door on the kingdom of God to us? Now I've got your attention. Jesus is leading them on a journey. And this is important for us this morning. Has this happened to you? Has the gospel of Christ forced you to ask, who can be saved? Once the patterns of thought start to break down, the next item that comes up on the list is, wait, can anyone be saved? For we all have a heart problem. We all have a desire problem. And that is, we do not want God our Father. We want us. We want ourselves to be in control. We're just like children, but not in the good way. This is a good sign, though, if you go through this process. You're beginning to see yourself in the way that God sees you and me. We are enemies, the Bible says, enemies who hate him. We hate his kingdom. We hate his authority over us. We want to be kings ourselves. And when we have wealth, we have a surefire sign that our kingdom is going pretty good. It is when you have nothing that you look around your kingdom and going, this is not working. This is a terrible kingdom. It is why the gospel is so powerful for those at the bottom of society, but also can be problematic, can be twisted and turned to do what? To just preach a gospel that says that we know you're poor, but if you believe in God, God will make you rich. It is such a human tendency to want to fall back into this mode of thinking but our, God will not let our hearts go that way if we are actually on a road to him. The gospel will arrest our hearts. What do we do with that information? 
Well, this leads me to my third point. The gospel will attack our pride. The gospel will attack our pride. In response to verse 126, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them. Right? Looked at them. I know what this is about. This is me looking at my sons about to meet out some important words of awesomeness. Usually discipline. Um, but something serious. I said, look at me. I said, I said, look at me. Jesus looked at them, and he wants to be very sure. With man, it is impossible, verse 27 says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Here's the most potent attack by Christ on us, on our hearts. There is nothing, absolutely nothing we can do in relation to God's standard of holiness and love. Nothing. For in another part of Mark, a man comes and asks him, and asks him Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? The, the same question. And Jesus responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. All of it. And there's the problem. We cannot love God with all our hearts on our own. It is impossible. Even if we say we want to, even if we say we can, we lie. For we will hold a part of our hearts up that we might control, that we might lead, that we might be little kings in a little part of our heart. And that is pride. That is the desire to be in the place of God. And it is attacked by Christ with these words. You cannot come to the kingdom of God but by God's power, not on your own. Because you cannot love God with all of you. But why can't we? Some might say, why can't we? Well, this is the problem. This is what we call sin. Sin is the desire to love ourselves first and last. Sin is the desire to love ourselves always, daily, above everything and everyone else, especially God. But Christ has come to preach a good news. That this good news is that there is now a way that God has made a way, is making a way, has made a way to deal with this problem, this heart problem. That Jesus Christ would come and he would live a perfect life, show us what it means to love his Father perfectly with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. And with that perfection, that perfection goes to the cross so that the perfect man would become the perfect sacrifice that God requires when we sin against him. And with that perfect sacrifice comes the ability for the first time ever to love God with all our heart. For if you repent, if you turn away from these, these, these patterns of thinking, these deep heartfelt desires to be an enemy of God, to rule your own life, and to not give God the glory he deserves. If you repent, if you turn away from them and turn to God in Christ, on the cross, in faith, you can be saved. You can be saved. But it is impossible with you. But it is only possible with God. The gospel will attack our pride, and that is the beginning 
of repentance. And point number four, the gospel will alter our lives. I think Peter here, he realizes the hopelessness of this situation. He, maybe he, he thinks of the, the rich young man that he just saw, and he wants to make sure of some important details here. In verses 28 through 31, we read, uh, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Peter turns quickly to Christ after hearing this attack on his pride, his own pride, the disciples, all of us, and says, well, wait, 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 wait. What a, we're okay, right? Right, Jesus? We, we gave rid of it. We did the right thing. We got rid of everything. We're not wealthy. And they did. Peter left his father and mother in fishing boat and followed Christ. And I think here the disciples are desperately hoping that somehow their life is a sign of the good news, that they will enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. And Jesus does affirm their hopes if, if, that their, if their sacrificial lives are the result of a desire to follow Jesus and live out the gospel. If their sacrifice of wealth and everything is a desire to follow Jesus and live out the gospel, they will receive the kingdom. But if and only if. It is possible to give everything away and to walk in a way that the world will say, wow, you are so pious and you are so poor and you do everything that seems good in the giving of everything, but if you do it for your own heart's glory, for your own pride, you are not guaranteed anything resulting in the kingdom of God. So Jesus affirms their hopes. He says, if your sacrifices are for the gospel, as it says here, if you sacrifice for my sake and for the gospel, you will be rewarded. And one thing that I, I would like to point out here, Jesus says you leave father and mother and brothers and sisters, and what will you receive? You will receive houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands. Jesus omits fathers in this little retelling of the list. Why? Because when you follow Christ and the gospel, you'll receive your heavenly Father. That is all you need. This is a critical, critical truth. This is one of the most important blessings of following God, and that is that you receive Him. You will love Him, and He will love you in a way that is impossible without Christ. And those of you who know my testimony, this, this was the way the Lord sought me and brought me. For I, my father left me, and it, it left a hole in my heart. And I heard the gospel sitting right back there where Paul and Susan are sitting 15 years ago. And the Lord started to work on my mind, my smart, incredibly adept and agile mind. I'm the smartest person in the world. And when I heard the gospel, I realized I have never heard this before. I can't figure it out. It's a puzzle. It's attacking things. And my wife and I moved to Ohio, and we sat on the preaching of a man, and this is what he preached. You will go to hell if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I said, well, that's problematic. 
Don't want that. And then he said, by the way, you have a heavenly father who loves you. And then he preached for a whole year on the love of a heavenly father. And I was broken. For that's all I had ever wanted was the love of a father. Little did I know there was a father there the whole time. Jesus is making a little point here. When you leave, you will get back. And one of the most important things you will get is a father, a heavenly father. But there are more blessings now that you'll receive. What will you receive? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Well, what is this? This isn't literally a new family, is it? Is this the family of God that you will receive when you become a follower of Christ? It is. Jesus is saying, I'm going to put you into a new family. You might leave your blood family, but this is an amazing thing. I go to Romania, and there's a family waiting for me there. I can go to Africa. There's a family waiting for me there. I can go to China. And if there are brothers and sisters there, that is my family. Do you know how many millions of family members I have right now? And they're mine. And I'm theirs. And I can show up at their door, and they will take me in. They'll give me anything I need. Amen? I pray that is us. I pray that any believer from anywhere in the world that comes... We will know instantaneously, brother and sister, I have longed to hug you. Come in. This is what Jesus is saying. What a blessing. You may have given up blood family, but you have received almost an infinite family in this life. You receive not just the family, but the hospitality that family brings and not only that, you receive the resources that the church offers all of us. I'm selfish. I like having birthday parties here for my kids. I've had many of them here. Many of you have come. Why? Because this church is my family, and this is my house. This is your house. The Lord has blessed us with it, and we use it. This is real blessing. Don't take for granted this building. Don't take for granted each other. Podluck. I mean, if there's one thing that we should focus on here, it's the fact that we feed each other. Okay? The Lord put me in the Baptist family. He knew what I needed. There's something else we're going to experience. Persecutions. The blessings of persecutions will come. What kind of persecutions? I can't tell you. But I do know this. In my life, they've come as persecutions of my own heart. They have come as the Holy Spirit, which comes inside of us after we repent and believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit persecutes me when I sin. The Holy Spirit persecutes me when I have strayed from my Heavenly Father, whom I say I love and whom I praise daily, and yet sometimes even I walk off the path of that love. And I get persecuted. Now, there are many, though, who experience not just those persecutions, but persecutions of body and mind as well. And there are many who give their entire lives to the Lord to serve Him for the sake of Christ and the gospel. We call them missionaries. They literally give everything away. Not all of us are called to do that, but many are. 
Maybe the Lord will call you. And you will experience persecutions, guaranteed. And they are part of the blessing, the list of blessings here that Christ says, do not worry, disciples. Uh, you will have a full life here. And more importantly, eternal life. Jesus co- concludes the way this whole story began. In the age to come, you will have blessings, eternal life. Here we are, full circle. A young man comes and says, how may I have eternal life? And Jesus concludes this, this part to say, this is how you have eternal life. Follow me. Mark concludes this with a well-known proverb of Christ. And the proverb reorients ourselves away from the sin of pride and of the sin of the world and into the holiness of God's kingdom. This is the radical life of a child that I want. We should release anything that Christ tells us to release that may have a hold on our hearts. We will never rightly prize Christ if we are constantly seeking earthly prizes. We will never be astonished and amazed by God's grace on the cross of Christ if we're more astonished and amazed by the things of the world. And what we do keep, what the Lord allows us to keep, how should we use that? We should pray that it will be fully and completely used for the gospel. Whatever it is, your home, your job, your cars, any material resources, any gifts you've been given, We pray that if the Lord allows us to keep them, let us use them for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And like children, we want to have nothing. We want to own nothing. And children think lightly of themselves, and so should we. And more importantly, children are dependent completely on someone else. We should also be that way with God. This morning, we were listening to praise songs, and Joshua, my four-year-old, and I were listening to a song, and there was a good theological point in the song, and I said, ah, a teaching moment. And I said, Joshua, why is this a happy song? And it was some deep theology about atonement. And he said, because Jesus is resurrected. And I said, yes, this is exactly why. I pray that that is the response to every question we ever have about the gospel. Jesus is resurrected. Let us be like children. If he holds on to that, he will do well in following the Lord. I pray that I hold on to that. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you call us to be your children. Lord, that you have adopted us into your family. And what a great family it is, Lord. It is a family that has been made white, pure as snow, by the cross of Christ. It is a family full of joy in your Holy Spirit, which binds and connects all of us together. But more importantly, Lord, we pray, and we praise you that your word calls us to be intimately connected to you, to hold nothing back, to release everything of this world, wealth, status, fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, low self-esteem, high self-esteem, pride above pride, Lord. We pray that you would connect us by showing us, teaching us, persecuting our hearts to release all of those things so that we might just be filled by your love. And Lord, there is no heart big enough to fill your 
heavenly love, but Lord, we pray that you would grow our hearts so that all we would experience is your love more and more. We pray, Lord, that Christ would be in, in our hearts and ready to be on our mouths daily, Lord. We pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen.